0: Please take out your Bibles, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that'll be our text this morning. If you don't have one, I'd encourage you to use the red one sitting in the pew rack in front of you. The page numbers we project correspond to those page numbers, it helps keep you ahead of everyone else. This morning we're continuing on in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, a series that I've entitled Life in the Church, and one of the major themes of the book of 1 Corinthians, is the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ to absolutely every part of every single part of our life, every day of our life, so that we come to understand that the gospel isn't merely a one-time event. As in, it's not that I, I believed when I'm 12 and I'm good. I walked down the aisle and I'm fine. I got baptized that one time and I'm taken care of. No, that's not what the gospel is it all the gospel according to the scriptures is the power of God at work in those who would trust Christ unto salvation first to save you and then to transform you? Consider Hebrews chapter ten, starting in verse twelve. By the way, every week I'm starting in a different place pointing because I want you to see this is consistent throughout the scriptures, right? This isn't just Paul and First Corinthians, this is everywhere. Hebrews 10, verse 12. When Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's pointing, when Christ died on the cross, when he paid the penalty for our sins, two verses later, verse 14. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's a past tense, and there's a present continuous. He's perfected those who are being sanctified. Friends, when Jesus Christ goes to the cross in our place to take the penalty for our sins, that is no small reality. But there's a reality beyond that. Consider what it says. It renders us perfected for all time. Friends, if you've believed in Jesus at the cross, your sin and your guilt are imputed into Jesus Christ. That is, it is passed on to him. On the cross, all of your sin that you've ever committed, ever will commit, is given to him. And in return, his righteousness is imputed into you. That is, passed directly to you is his character, his righteousness is given to you, rendering you justified. What do I mean by that? Your record is now completely clean. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, he has perfected you. Now that doesn't mean that you won't sin. And it doesn't mean that you won't fall short. What it means is that when God the Father looks at you, he now sees you through the completed work of Jesus Christ. He sees you through the lens of Jesus so that what he sees is not the muck and mire and challenges of your sin. What he sees is the completed work of Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees Jesus' glory. That's what he sees when he sees you because of Christ. And, because that's not it. Look at verse 14. He has perfected for all time those who are being, that have been, are being... Continuous, sanctified. The work of Jesus Christ is at work sanctifying you. That is, purifying you, changing you, conforming you to his likeness, to his image. That is, that those who've been declared clean are now being made clean. Those who've been declared righteous are now being made righteous. That you're called to look like Jesus. To be conformed to what God the Father sees in you. That's the very idea that Paul is getting to when he writes to the church at Corinth. To understand that the gospel is more than a one-time event. That the gospel saves you and it transforms you. And friends, if you're here this morning and this gospel is foreign to you, that is, it doesn't belong to you, can I just tell you today is the day of salvation. Today is a day you can turn away from your sins, to turn to Jesus Christ, to have your sin passed over onto Him and to have His righteousness passed on to you. For just as Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That gospel can be yours. Because as we walk through this book, we need to keep an eye on the reality that Paul is writing to believers. So as we keep walking through this book, we're calling believers up. And if you're here and you've never believed, you might start to think it's a moralistic message. And it's not. He's calling transformed believers to lead a transformed life. Which is why we've got to constantly put before you that if you've not believed, brothers and sisters, the first step is not to look better. It's not to look cleaner. It's not to conform. It's to trust Christ. And we want to ask you to trust Christ. It's Christ that changes us. It's Christ that redeems us. It's Christ that transforms us. It's not my effort. One of my favorite guys to follow on Twitter is a man named Garrett Kell. We went to seminary together, pastors in Washington, D.C. At the top of it, he has a pinned post. And he shows uh, an example. says, this is what sanctification looks like in my life. And it shows a man get on an escalator. And immediately upon getting on the first step, he falls over and drops everything and is drugged up the step foot forward. Like, despite his best efforts... Jesus is dragging him up. It's kind of what it looks like sometimes. That's what we want us to see as we walk into Corinthians. That Jesus will both save our soul and transform us. So as we move to 1 Corinthians 4, let's keep it in context. You might recall from chapter 1 that one of the first issues that Paul addresses in Corinth is divisions in the church. We've been looking at that for four chapters, and as such, he's calling the church up. He's calling them to mature, and he's been taking different angles to consider it. First, in chapter one, they're called to push away from their self-centeredness towards Christ-centeredness. Secondly, in chapter two, they're pushed to move away from an earthly wisdom, from an earthly perspective, to a heavenly wisdom, to a heavenly perspective. Then chapter 3, Paul exhorts them even more to grow up, to recognize their immaturity. And we were called last week to recognize we are all immature. Until the day you step into glory, Jesus Christ still has a plan to sanctify you. Otherwise, He would have taken you home. Jesus is still at work maturing us. And so this morning, as we move into chapter 4, we'll see Paul's final exhortation in regards to the church in Corinth, looking at the divisions in the church and maturity. So let's look, chapter 4, verse 1, this is what Paul writes. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul, looking at the church of Corinth, recognizing they've had a leadership issue, recognizing that some have had preferences. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. So Paul says, this is how you should regard us. This is how the church should look upon its teachers, its leaders, its elders, its pastors. Remember, Paul planted this church in Corinth. That's why he's got the right to write back to them, let alone his qualifications. Because one of the issues he's pointing to is why they have division. And one of the reasons he's pointing to is it, it refers to how they look at their church leadership. Now follow me on this, because it won't be nearly as self-serving as you think. Paul says, view us as... Servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul gives two different word pictures with some fairly similar meanings. The first word, servants. Now there are times where Paul will use the word douloi. It's a word that gets to slave. And often when servant, he'll go to a diakonoi, to a servant, to a a deacon comes from that idea. But here he doesn't lean into either of the words he normally uses. He uses a different word. He uses puperites, And what this word means, I don't like to get real nerdy with you very often, but here it comes. This word has a very precise meaning because what it points to is the idea of an under rower. Now what an under rower is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's a slave that served on a galley ship. And it referred to a man who sat under the deck of the boat, couldn't see anything, but the man sitting in front of him while he's holding an oar. And all he could do was pull when the man yelled, pull. That's it. That's his only job is to listen to his master tell him what to do and to do so in a coordinated effort. His job was not to know where he's going. His job was not to make decisions. His job was to listen to his master and do what he was told. That's Paul's first picture. I'm a servant. I'm an under rower of Christ. Christ is my master. He tells me what to do. And I don't have to understand it. I don't have to see it all. When Christ says, pull, I pull. And the second picture is a steward. And in this case, a steward of the mysteries of God. So what's a steward? A steward or a manager would be an appropriate word. Was a special servant whom the master would entrust with the administration of a business or property. That is, his job was to devote all of his time, all of his energy, all of his talents to executing the master's orders, to pursuing the master's plan, to fulfilling the master's interests in a particular area. Now you have to quickly get that a manager's manager's job, a steward's job, is not Their own interest. It's not their best interest in mind. It's not their plan. It's the master's. And what you find in both pictures that Paul is giving to the Corinthians is a servant who belongs to a master and is required to follow his master's directions. So Paul wants the church to understand. And then in verse 2, he pushes on. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. He's a servant. He's a slave. His job is to be found faithful. He'll be held accountable. If he's not doing what he's told, he'll be removed. His job is to be found faithful, do what the master tells them. Now, if you'll let me go ahead and jump about 14 verses ahead, I'll let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Because what Paul is going to do is he pushes through here. There's absolutely a context where Paul is leaning in to say, church, one of your issues is you don't understand what your leaders are supposed to be about. And if you understood that they serve me and not you, it would clarify some things for you. If you understood that they're my servants and not your servants, it would bring some helpful understanding that would clarify your division. It'd grow you up a little. But I also want you to see what Paul does in verse 16. And I want you to see it now. Because in verse 16, Paul will write. We'll get there in a couple minutes. I urge you then, writing to the church of Corinth, the imitators of me. Paul presents himself as a mature example in the face of their immaturity. So he says, grow up, live a grown up life. Live like, like me, follow my example, which is to say, in addition to Paul saying, I'm a servant and I'm a steward is to understand that that's a picture of maturity, that it's not just true for the leaders. It's true for believers. That Jesus is calling all of us to that same understanding that we're called to be servants and stewards. So is it about our interests? No. Is it about our plan? No. Is it about what my best self-interest is? No. I belong to a master. Paul's going to try to tie all of you in later. I'm just tying you all in now. Because I want you to see that what Paul writes here is consistent with the scriptures. Because when Paul says stewards must be found faithful, Jesus said that too. And in this case, Jesus wasn't talking about pastors and church leaders. He's talking about disciples. He's talking about his followers. Jesus includes you. In fact, he includes everyone who claims the name of Jesus. So let's look at Matthew 25, verse 14. You should know there are three parables that get to stewardship using the same idea of managing what God has given you. You can later go to Luke 13. You can go to Luke 19, but we're going to be in Luke 25. Matthew 25. Point for Paula. For we'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his. Property. You see the idea of a steward? Call a servant. I'm gonna entrust something to you. I want you to manage what I've given you. That's what a steward is. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he's using a parable, a teaching device, so that they'll understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. They'll understand what God's plan is, what his purpose is. It's worth noting that this parable called the parable of talents, is often taught in connection with the parable of the ten virgins because they're connected. If we're walking through Matthew, we'd connect them, but we're not going to connect them now because we're not going to take the time to do it. But what I want you to see is in this parable, the servants are entrusted with property. They're stewards. It's exactly what Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 4. So look at Jesus as he plays out this example. Three stewards. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Now listen to me. Jesus gives out talents. Five to one, two to another, one to one. Are we all equally gifted? No. Jesus did it. His will, his design. It's his purpose. It's all according to your ability, which he gave it to you. He knows what you can handle. Jesus gets credit for that one. Then he went away, the master. And he who received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug into the ground and hid his master's money. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. I took what you gave me. I managed it. I stewarded it. You gave me five. Here's ten his master because masters hold their servants accountable said well done good and faithful servant you've been faithful over a little i will set you over much enter into the joy of your master you see the master is pleased with the steward who stewards well verse 22 and also who had made that he who had made The two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. He took what he'd been given. He stewarded it well, verse 23, and his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The same response. The guy with five brought back five. He was faithful. Guy with two brought back two. He was faithful. Stewarding well. Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent." In the ground. Here is what is yours. Now, if we were preaching this parable, we'd spend a lot of time talking about that. Because what we'd want to see is that they don't take the master very seriously. What we'd want to see is that there's not a lot of trust for the master. And in fact, there's a whole lot of taking the master for granted. I took what you have and I buried it. Verse 26. And his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have in- invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Pause. To the steward who's faithful will be given more responsibilities. And to the steward who's not, they'll lose it all. Verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You want to follow out the scriptures? Jesus is basically saying... He didn't take me seriously. He must not belong to me. Beloved, Jesus taught in parables to reveal truth because He wanted His disciples, He wanted His followers to understand truth. And He did so by giving them these word pictures to see that the truth of the parable is that stewards follow their master's directions. That's their only job. What does the master say? That's what I do. Stewards are faithful, and when they're faithful, they're commended. And stewards who take their master for granted, and rather than pursuing obedience, pursue sloth, or pursue their own gain, are cast out. Beloved, servants and stewards belong to their master. They're given directions, and they have accountability. And here's the thing I want you to walk away from. The only thing opinion that matters to a steward is his master's. That's it. Everything else is a distraction. That's where Paul is taking the Corinthians. So let's go back to First Corinthians four, because Paul will land in First Corinthians four three by saying, "But with me it is a it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court." He's saying, to be frank. Your opinion is very small. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Dear Paul, my opinion is very small. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Paul recognizes his own self-deception. I have searched my heart. I'm not seeing any guilt, but that doesn't mean I'm not guilty. It is the Lord who judges me. Now this is Paul's claim to the phrase, the audience of one. His aim, his only aim, was to be obedient to the master, Jesus. In 1900s, there was a pastor at Moody Church in Chicago named H.A. Ironside. I love the last name Killer Lane. If I got to pick a better last name, it would be Ironside. Dr. Ironside, while preaching 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this was his observation and also his application. This is what he says. As long as I'm faithful in opening up the word of God, I'm not concerned whether my sermons particularly appeal to you or not. As long as I know that I'm pleasing him that sent me, I am not greatly concerned if I displease you. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians 4, that matters. Because Paul is saying your church leaders have to live only to please their master. And according to 1 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul's going to call you to that too, right? That we are all called to live in such a way, Christian maturity looks like living in such a way that we only live to please our master. So Paul is expressing to the Corinthians verse 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Who Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive commendation from God. Paul points out to them God knows everything. He knows the intentions of the heart. He knows the darkness that's hidden in and wickedness. God Only God can discern the purposes of the heart and commendations will come from the Master. I serve for an audience of one. Jesus is the only opinion that matters. I'm following my Master. He's the one who will judge me. He's the one who will commend me. It's His condemn- commendation is the only one that matters. And Paul will go on in verses 6-13 through to apply this to Apollos and the other teachers as well. As well as the church of Corinth. Recognizing, calling them to see that they have what they have because God gave it to them. And in fact that passage is quite snarky and sarcastic. It's worth you spending some time looking at. We don't have time to dig into it. Paul lands us back in verse 14 concluding. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul writes to the Corinthians not to shame them, not to make them feel less than they are. Brothers and sisters, lest we forget his introduction, he writes to them as those who are sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. You belong. You belong to him. What he's trying to do is he's trying to admonish them. According to Webster's dictionary, to admonish is to indicate obligations or duties. It's to remind you that you have an obligation. It's to remind you that you have a master. I want to remind you, as my kids, you two have a master. I want you to know, I want you to be warned in a friendly manner. That's the third definition. And he does so as a spiritual father. Verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel. The gospel. Do you not see the work of the gospel in all of this? That Paul's working to exhort them, to encourage them, to call them up. He's not trying to shame them. He's trying to call them up through the gospel. The gospel doesn't leave you alone. The gospel doesn't just commend you with grace and say, just keep trying hard. Good effort. Here's your participation trophy. It's not what the gospel does. The gospel saves us and sanctifies us. The gospel saves us and moves us into Christ's likeness. It calls us up. The same way that a father looks at his children and says, guys, let's be mature. Let's grow up a little. Paul's discipling the Corinthians. He never uses the word, but that's his action. Just as a father would disciple his children, and just as Jesus discipled the disciples. Paul's showing the Corinthians that the gospel doesn't just save them, it transforms them, it it matures them and it grows them up. And in this case, it's to understand as they've moved away from a self-centeredness to a Christ-centeredness, chapter one, the full implication of that is to understand the only voice that matters is the masters. That's it. It's the masters. So in verse 16, when he says, I urge you then be imitators of me, beloved, what he's putting before you is to be a mature believer in Jesus Christ, to use his words, if we're to move away from spiritual milk to solid food, to his particular illustration, if we're to stay away, if we're to be mature enough to stay away from divisions in the church Because that's what Paul's writing about here. That's what he's warning against. We must be mindful of the lessons of 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and 4. We must move from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. We must move from human wisdom to heavenly wisdom. We must be matured, having our power of discernment trained by constant practice. We pulled that phrase out of Hebrews chapter 5 last week. We must be a people who are in the Word of God to be grown up by the Word, to be matured by the Word, to be confronted by the Word, to be trained by the Word, which is to say, brothers and sisters, if you only come to this book to be comforted, you're missing a good half of it. Because this book should both comfort and confront. There has to be times when you read its pages and it says, no, Otherwise, he's not your master. You are. And that's problematic. In this fourth chapter, Paul is pushing them to know and to understand that their leaders are servants and stewards who belong to the Lord, take their direction from the Lord, will be held accountable to the Lord. That's part of maturity. But we also must come to know and to learn if we are to be mature that we, every single one of us who've trusted in and believed in Jesus Christ that we belong to the Lord. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. And because We are servants. Whether you want to make that a slave, a servant, or a steward, we are all three according to the Scriptures. We take all of our directions from the Lord. So when you say the Lord Jesus Christ, that's actually what you're saying. The Lord, He's our Master. We take all of our directions from Him and we'll be accountable to Him. Look, if we're to believe this, if we're to follow this, it is to understand that what Jesus says about us is truer than what anyone else says about us. And that goes true both ways, right? It means that when I'm struggling and I feel awfully about myself, then what Jesus says about me is truer than what Satan is accusing me of. And when I'm complacent and slothful and lazy and entitled to, and feeling like I'm, oh, I deserve to not have to deal with my neighbors. I deserve to not have to discipline my kids well. I deserve to not love my wife well today. To recognize that what is true is not how I feel, but what he says. I'm not my own. I take my directions from the Lord and I will be held accountable. It's Paul's picture of maturity through chapters one, two, three, and four. Next week we'll press into chapter five. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we give thanks for Jesus Christ. We give thanks for your son who willingly left your side became flesh and dwelt among us, walked for three years training and discipling men, and died on a cross because the blood of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient. Died on a cross because my best efforts would never be good enough. Whatever sacrifices I've made would never account for the sin in my life. Jesus died on the cross that I could be justified, that I could be perfected. The Father, through the blood of Jesus, when you look at me, you see your Son, Jesus. That's why we can come before you in prayer. Always. Every day we can come before you because of the completed work of Christ. We can enter into your presence and you're glad we come because of Jesus. You've saved us. And you're not leaving us just as a saved people. You're transforming our lives. Father, the very nature of the church, according to this book, is not just a gathered up group of saved people, but a gathered group of people who are saved and being transformed. Father, that every single one of us has, you're in process of changing us into the likeness of your Son and growing us up and maturing us. That we would walk away from our sins. Oh, sure, we'll still struggle. We'd walk away from our selfishness. And yeah, we'll still dabble. And we'll walk away from a self. A meanness to understand, Jesus, that you are supreme, that you're sovereign, that you're our Lord, and that your voice is the voice that matters. And so our obedience to you testifies to our maturity in you. Father, I pray that you would not allow any of us to be satisfied with our current level of obedience but that you'd call us all the more to become more and more and more and more obedient to your son Jesus, to be more and more and more and more transformed by him. Not out of our effort, but submitting ourselves to your word and trusting you to transform our lives. Father, be at work in us that our lives would testify to who you are more and more and more grow us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.